Good afternoon. This is your host, John, of the Research Review, creating a platform to connect and inspire. I'm here with a, another excellent guest today, Alexis. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your research? My name's Alexis. I'm a senior. Um, I'm majoring in psychology here and my research is on period culture, sex education, and how it impacts future behaviors. Awesome. And can you dive a little bit more into that for us? Of course, yeah. Um, so initially, um, we wanted to look at how um, period culture impacts the individual as the whole, sex education um, with three um, subtypes, um, sex positive sex education, period culture proxied sex education, as well as a complete lack of sex education. And we want to look at how both of those impacted future behaviors such as um, sexual autonomy, um, sexual submissiveness, body shame, eating behaviors, disordered eating, as well as um, sexual trauma. Okay. And with that, um, we did a pilot study over the summer and through the pilot study, we did exploratory analysis and found um, that period culture itself is not a good predictor of any of these measures, but period culture proxied education causes an increase in disordered eating. It does not impact body shame, and it's a predictor of increases in sexual trauma, whereas no sex education at all and uh, sex positive education is not predictive of unhealthy eating or sexual trauma. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can totally see how that relates, definitely. I think this is an amazing topic, and it's something that needs to be talked about a lot more, both in our society as a whole and within our educational systems. Now, how do you define, like, our current state of our purity culture? Okay, so um, purity culture historically started out as a construct within evangelical Protestantism, mm -hmm. but you could see it ingrained in American culture as a whole, for example, um, constructs such as the um, father giving away the daughter on their wedding day, um, the handing yeah. off of the bride is um, signifying that women are property and that's tied to period culture as well as the idea that women wear an engagement ring but men do not. That's mm -hmm. historically meant to signify that the woman has been claimed. Mm -hmm. And you can even see it in realms of popular culture for example, like the Jonas Brothers, um, that way back when in 2010, they all wore purity rings, as well as Miley Cyrus. And um, that was during that time, absence pledges or um, purity pledges were big. And there's also other ideas within it, such as purity bowls, which are um, dances that men go to, fathers take their daughters and it's meant to celebrate their purity, um, their virginity, I should say. Yeah. Um, and they wear white, and the dad wears a suit. It almost looks like the father is marrying the da daughter, if you look at it out of context. Mm -hmm. And the idea that women are sexual commodities can be seen in media and advertisement, which is all rooted in purity culture. Yeah. What are some examples of how it can be seen in advertisements specifically? If you um, look at, like, clone ads, for example, you see the women being sold as 
sex. Mm-hmm. You don't see any sort of substance to women in those types of ads. You see them walking around in big bikinis, fawning over men, oftentimes gazing up at them as if they are subservient or less than. Yeah. The idea that you could sell women as sexual objects can be connected to purity culture. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And now that you bring up examples of the, the purity balls, mm-hmm. I have... I do have memories of seeing references to those in certain films. Uh, are they still occurring? From my understanding, they occur in the church. Mm-hmm. It's not as much of a normal practice outside of the church or outside of those communities, but those yeah. balls still exist today. And an ex- example in the media that I could think of is they had it on a TV show, Shameless. Mm-hmm. I personally have never been invited to a Puri Bowl or been to a Puri Bowl, but I do know they still occur today. Okay. I don't know if I'd particularly want to go to one. <laughs> <laughs> Neither would I, but... Yeah. But now, you were talking about the church. You think the church had a, um, a big role to play in this purity culture? Yes. So the church teaches, um, teaches a hierarchy, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So if you are a part of this culture, the top is God. Then it's the church and the church leaders. And then it's men. And then it's women and then children. With the church teaches the people the goals through processes of assimilation and indoctrination. Mm -hmm. Um, They teach um, the people to idealize the nuclear family, the idea that men and women are the only ones meant to marry. And then the goal should be to have the white picket fence, the three kids, and that women are meant to be housewives. Their role is to appease the man, keep the family together. And men's role is to lead the church, keep their family in line. Mm -hmm. And the church also teaches the constructs of um, what's a sin and what's not a sin, what's acceptable behavior. And if you defy the church in these communities, you're often shunned. And um, I think the success of this culture is tied to it being a community and the need to be a part of that community and the loss of status that comes to play if you go against those values. Right. I received a Catholic education um, in elementary school through high school. And I can tell you that everything you're saying is completely true. And I believe that it is it is damaging to young minds and the future of our world. Because when you get out into the world, you realize this is not what the world is anymore. And it's not what it should be. You know what I mean? And especially is damaging in um, sex education starting in fifth grade. Could you dive more into sex education within schools? Of course. Yeah. Um, so in the United States... There's no federally mandated way to enact Mm -hmm. sex education. They leave it up to the states, and the states largely have control of sex education through public funding. So most private schools, the majority are um, religious schooling. So since they're private, they have no guidelines on what they're supposed to say. But in Ohio, they encourage abstinence-only education. There's no mandates. Legally speaking, in Ohio, you don't have to use science-based facts Mm -hmm. to back up what you're teaching children, meaning that a teacher, for example, a sex ed teacher could 
use fear-mongering as a tactic to encourage kids to stay absent so they could say things that are not true, such as um, if you get chlamydia, you could die. Right. And um, there are private programs and publicly funded programs that do advocate for sex-positive education, but they're currently not in place. For example, Planned Parenthood is a major advocate for Mm -hmm. science-based sex positive sex education and what they advocate for is lgbtq plus inclusive sex ed um, body positivity consent taught from a very young age as well as um, teaching about pregnancy preventive methods as well as std and sti preventive methods but currently like i said there's no standard so the majority of sex ed in ohio does tend to lean towards absence only. Yeah, and I mentioned to you to this earlier about a, last, last Monday, I actually listened to a, a presentation about how um, the teaching of abstinence is ineffective. Um, also during that, that presentation, I learned that not all states are even required to teach sex ed, yes. which I found very interesting. That's one of the most important things that we can learn in our development. And I don't understand why they would leave that out of curriculum. A hundred, I a hundred percent agree. Um, the issue with not teaching sex ed is there's a lot of things you could consider sex education that a lot of people may not initially think of sex education, mm-hmm. like puberty, for example, learning about how your body changes that falls in the realm of sex ed, but things like consent fall in that realm as well. And you could teach consent as young as kindergarten, and the topics could still exist, and those could still be beneficial. And in my opinion, personally, I think not teaching sex ed is incredibly dangerous in the sense that kids aren't learning what's happening to them. And if you think of young girls, if no one ever teaches a young girl that she's going to menstruate and she wakes up one day covered in blood, that could be an incredibly traumatic experience. Yes. And just the general awareness of what could happen to you, is especially in terms of prevention of sexual assault, in my opinion, sex ed can ch- change and save lives. Mm-hmm. No, totally. Because when you're not lear- learning it in the curriculum, you're leaving it up to students to be educated through experiences. Yes. And when you t- were talking about your first menstruation cycle, oftentimes those first experiences can be quite intimidating. Mm-hmm. And then also, too, a lot of times some of your first sexual experiences can be negative, and then you're learning from negative experiences. And like you talked about earlier, that can lead to sexual trauma on all sorts of levels. Exactly. Like one of the things I learned through this project is most children are typically exposed to pornography Mm -hmm. as young as eight years old. If we think of top popular topics in porn, um, there's things that involve hitting women, degradation, um, tying people up. Mm -hmm. If that's your first exposure to what sex is, it could lead young people thinking that that's just okay to do without discussing. Yes. And then it could also lead to the idea that sex is transactional as it is in porn Mm -hmm. or that sex is meant to be dangerous or scary and involve things like intimidation. And as a child, that can be incredibly damaging. And not only is it damaging, seeing what those stars look like could cause um, body image issues in young children as well. Yeah, definitely. As you're comparing themselves to the people that you see on screen. 
I know that there has been a large rise in erectile dysfunction on men under the age of 40. And from what I've read, a large reason for that is from, from being desensitized to porn. Because when you discover it at such a young age, you have unrealistic expectations. And then when you begin to have sex, it does not line up with what you were anticipating. And then it just doesn't turn you on like you would expect. And I think a huge cause of recent erectile dysfunction is you're not getting aroused psychologically anymore. I personally am not as familiar with that, but intuitively, I think you could think of it almost like alcoholism Mm -hmm. in the sense that when you first start drinking, you might get drunk off of one shot, one drink, but the more and more you drink, the more of a tolerance you get and the more of a tendency you have to escalate. Mm -hmm. So it kind of begs the question, if you start, if one starts viewing pornography at eight years old and the first thing they see involves women getting beaten and then there's that natural urge and inclination to escalate what comes next true and that's very scary because it's it's similar to a lot of things a lot of things that release dopamine from what i understand Mm -hmm. say for example uh exercise uh if you become addicted to exercise you will constantly need more you will spend more and more time in the gym you will up and up your weight and you need to keep exerting yourself to be able to feel that same effect you know what i mean It's the same thing with pornography. It's just not stimulating you to the point that it was in the beginning. And you need stuff that is abnormal and oftentimes does not lead to um, good decision making to feel that satisfaction. Yeah. Yeah. That's actually a very interesting point with exercising. That just made me think of orthorexia, which is the addiction to being so healthy that becomes disordered. I think with things like sex and one of the things in education that needs to be taught is the idea of control. Mm -hmm. And there's really no right answer to that because how do you say how much is too much, how much is too little? But I think when you put in place standards in sex education, like for example, answering questions like, is porn healthy? What's a healthy amount of sex to have? how many partners, what's the average amount of partners you have? Once you create that standard, I yeah. think it could be protective. Okay. Out of curiosity, what do you think the correct answers to those would be? I, I do want to say, I, th- I'm i not an expert in this. Right, I mainly right, right. just did a study. But based upon my personal beliefs, I think um, porn has been shown to be harmful. Mm-hmm. And I, I think the answer to it being becoming healthier is to have standards in the field itself, such as um, I know um, the company Pornhub recently got in trouble for having videos of underage children and having videos of people's assaults Mm -hmm. and videos that were just put on from like OnlyFans sites that the women did not consent to having on those websites. I think that contributes to porn being unhealthy. And I think having the field be regulated more would make it healthier, such as making sure that, like, one thing that is only in practice, I believe, in California is that the art um, the artists have to wear condoms. Mm-hmm. I think if you have, hypothetically, in my opinion, children should not be viewing porn at all, even teenagers. Mm-hmm. But if they're going to view it, 
So if you constantly see people not using condoms, you're going to think that's normal. So I think that's another standard that should be put in place. And with sexual partners, I, to answer your question on what I think a healthy amount is, I think that comes into play personal boundaries and personal experiences. Mm -hmm. For example, people with a history of sexual assault, um, they might experience um, hypo or hypersexuality. So their predisposition to the amount of sex they wish to have will be drastically different than the general population. If you separate them from the general population, their responses to how many partners they have will be significantly different. So I think the um, partners should vary by the individual. Like some people might be more comfortable having casual sex, whereas others might be more comfortable going from a relationship and building that emotional connection. So I think it depends, which is probably not the best answer, but that's what I think. No, that's a great answer. That's a great answer to me. I think like body counting, I think it's harmful Mm -hmm. because um, like you said earlier, not every sexual experience is positive. So you might not want to include it in your history, but I I think the only thing that's really relevant with counting your partners is um, when you get tested. Yeah. And knowing your health history. Okay. But you don't think that the amount of sexual partners you have does not decrease your experience of sex later on unless... Decrease your experience as in decrease (laughs) your um, pleasure you get during sex? Yeah, like pleasure, basically. I think, again, that depends on your experience. But Mm -hmm. I think if one were to go from partner to partner like every single night... Yeah. I think it's kind of like eating junk food every night. Yeah. Eventually you could get tired of it, but some people could do that their whole life and be completely content. Because I know that that is is an an ongoing topic. Um, It's like, should we view sex, you know, more casually? Mm -hmm. Um, Or should we be very conservative about, you know, who we choose to have sex with? Because a lot of people believe that it decreases the meaning of sex and decreases your pleasure that you experience through sex but the answer you gave does bring a lot of clarity to that it is a case-by-case basis and it should not be it should not have one set answer for everyone everyone's personal choices and they should have their own personal answer to that question I completely agree it's like even in relationships there's different ways to approach it like a lot of people talk about like situationships now and A lot of times I think if you just have your own rules in sex and relationships and you communicate, that's the best way to protect yourself and that's the best way to ensure that you're meeting your partner's needs while not putting your needs on the back burner or over-prioritizing your needs over your partner. Mm -hmm. Totally agree. I think this is awesome work that you're doing here. Thank you so much. (laughs) How did you come up with the idea of the project? Okay, so I work in two labs, the Delahanty Stress and Health Lab, and I'm an RA there. And then I also work in the Stigma, Weight, and Gender Lab. And I started as an RA there about a month after I started at the Delahanty Lab. Okay. And... Are these Kent State affiliated? Are they separate? They are? Yes. Awesome. Where, um, how? Um, So both are housed through the psychology um, department. The Stigma Way and Gender Lab is um, done by Dr. Himmelstein. And the Delahanty Stress and Health Lab is done by Dr. Delahanty. I believe he's also the um, interim vice president of 
research. I'm not 100% sure on that I one. I knew the name sounded familiar. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, the way I came about to this project was um, at the Delahanty Lab, all I really did was recruit research participants for a post-traumatic stress injury study. Mm-hmm. And then at the Himmelstein Lab, all I really did was, um, at the time, they just had me coding data in Excel. Yeah. And Dr. Himmelstein at Laming brought up the idea that we could propose our own independent projects. And I came up with about 15 projects. Really? Yeah, ideas. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then one weekend I was sick. Mm-hmm. I started watching Twilight. And um, as um, infantile as it sounds, I started to notice very, very much religious undertones. And then I um, kind of went into a deep dive because I was sick and bored, found um, stuff about purity culture. Mm-hmm. And then I started thinking about my project. And initially it was going to be on how does purity culture impact sex? And once I got my project approved, I did a semester just researching purity culture and sex and body image. And eventually I came to the conclusion that sex education would be the best avenue to look at it with the idea in mind that most people, if they receive sex education at all, will receive it at the point of puberty. Mm -hmm. And I thought if you're receiving it with religious undertones in a religious community, that that would intuitively, I thought that would impact you throughout adulthood. So it became very important to make that the focal print point of the project, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that definitely makes sense. What's the outcome? Do you um, have an outcome? Okay, so with the pilot data, we found that sex education is the focal predictor, and we had three sex educations. It was no sex ed, um, purity culture proxied sex ed, as well as sex positive sex ed. And we found that Puriculture proxied sex ed was associated with disordered eating patterns as well as a higher score in the sexual sexual experience long form victimization survey, meaning that it's associated with scoring higher in sexually traumatic experiences. Okay, interesting. Now, how did you conduct this pilot study exactly? So, right now. Um, the pilot study was done over the summer and it was done via Prolific, which is an online survey panel. And we um, had 200 participants, all female, ranging from, I believe, 18 to 25 years old. Yeah. And um, the survey collection took three days. It goes That's it? Fa- yeah, it really? goes really fast oh, because <laughs> um, on Prolific, they get paid. Mm-hmm. And it really? gets advertised national. Um, I'm sorry, it gets advertised to the members of the website yeah and if they're eligible they get they get to see my study and then they get to um take it and then we if their answers are viable they get included so it goes very quickly and we just finished collecting we did a sona sample we have not analyzed it yet what's a sona sample so um very interesting enough i'm also um the subject pool manager for the psychology department and SONA is a um, survey website that's used throughout colleges Mm -hmm. and the sample is um, college students at least I believe they had to be 18 and they all take um, Kent State psychology classes and if their classes are extra 
if they want extra credit, they could participate in research. I remember that. I took an intro psychology class, and um, we did have to do that. A lot of it was the online stuff, yeah. Yeah. So I was, um, my study was one of the online studies included mm-hmm. this semester, and that was very exciting. It's kind of cool to see your people, like your friends, take your study for yeah. extra credit. <laughs> and I believe that had about 300 participants. I still have to analyze that data. Wow. That's going to be cool. Yeah, I'm very excited to see the outcome. And then we also received funding to start a third sample collection through Prolific um, in January. Mm-hmm. And the one that you're t- talking about right now, that's the project that you proposed? Um, yes, this is my project. Okay, wow. And how many how many people are working on that team? My project is um, just done with me and Dr. Himmelstein. Okay. And so um, there's another... RA that's also doing a project. So we just do our projects ourselves. Uh-huh. And then Dr. Himmelstein supervises it and corrects us as needed. Okay, awesome. When you keep mentioning RA, I keep thinking resident assistant <laughs> instead of research assistant because I'm, um, I'm an RA over at uh, Olson. And it's funny because I was looking at my, um, my resume or something, and then it was like, research assistant, resident assistant, and there was some other RA position I did, but I, I forget what it was. But anyway, yeah, keep, keep going. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> oh, no, it's okay. I get confused all the time. So I always, on my resume, I write out like lab manager, research assistant. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, I, I, don't want, I want to get confused. But um, yeah, so it's just me and Dr. Himmelstein. And it was really cool because um, I never thought I'd have the opportunity to um, conduct my own literature review. Yeah. Um, to go, I learned how to code my survey. And then I also um, learned how to analyze the data. And um, normally, like, I don't think people tip, typically, um, psychology is thought of as a social science. So I don't think people necessarily think of coding data or um, analyzing data, but to have the opportunity as an undergrad to do that, I was very grateful for. Yeah, no, I know I know exactly what you mean. I was recruited by a um, professor in the College of Public Health. She has her PhD in communications for a project where we do a similar process. You look at responses, with it's in a community form. And she started using the term coding. <laughs> this is like the first day I met her. So she said, we're going to be coding this. We're going to be coding that. You're going to be signing on as our newest coder. And I was like, I don't know how to code. Like, <laughs> what are you talking about? And she's, she's, like, she's like, no, 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 no. We're coding them into like communication categories. We're like um, what, coding them on like their meaning. You know what I mean? Oh, so it's like qualitative data? Yes, it's all qualitative. That is very cool. In my opinion, um, there's nothing more valuable than quality of data. Mm-hmm. In my sample, only one question was qualitative, but it's incredibly interesting from a research per- research perspective to see the responses people get because yeah. I consider, um, I'm biased, but I do consider every answer that my part- the participants in my study give as valuable, mm-hmm. but there's only so much information you could get from a one to nine scale of strongly disagree to um, strongly agree. Exactly. Whereas like qualitative data, you not only get to see how people interpret your question line, you also get to see what played a role in how they answered. Like the one um, that I'm really looking forward to analyzing is we had a question um, on my survey and my study on Mm -hmm. um, to what degree were you raised in purity culture? Yeah. And to compare, I'm really looking forward to being able to compare those to the other responses Mm -hmm. because even though it can't be coded in the same way, I think 
that's a very valuable way to get information from people. Definitely. No, I totally agree with you. I don't like putting boundaries on what a person's response could be. So when you leave that door open, it also helps you as a researcher to think more. You know what I mean? They could leave a comment that you never would have thought about, and it could open up questions in the future on, you know, either how should I change methods to conduct a study or, you know, opening up potential investigation in the future. Exactly. Like, um, with that question, I'm hoping to analyze it um, before we're proposing an experiment based upon what we found. Mm -hmm. And I want to see how people were raised in puriculture in order to um, better design the experiment. Because if it's like, for example, it didn't look like this, but if every one of my um, responses said I was not raised in puriculture that would show to me that it's not the most relevant thing to ask. Right. And it would show that I need to explore the project in a, from a different angle. Whereas if every response is, I went to Puri Bowls, I, um, I was told that sex is bad and that I should be scared of sex, mm-hmm. that would change how I conducted the future experiment. Yeah. No, that sounds like a, that sounds like a very good method you have in mind. Um, yeah. What do you plan on doing after undergrad? I actually just finished applying to grad school. I want to get my PhD. I do too. <laughs> it's so cool. And yeah. it's way better in my opinion because it's fully funded. Um, way better than in, in a master's. Yeah. But I'm hoping to, I apply to clinical programs as well as experimental psychology programs. Okay. And um, most of the research I want to do focuses on stress, um, shame, and stigma. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm really hoping to get into a program that studies it. The pro of doing a clinical one is that I'd be able to work at the population level, and a lot of my experience is more clinical. But I think based upon the study that that has opened the door for more programs. Definitely, yeah. And then um, after you get your PhD, what kind of stuff do you think you'd like to do? Do you think you'd like to teach or travel or like what do you have in mind? Oh, um, yeah, sorry. I would um I would love to teach. Um I'm hoping to um eventually end up on the coast like in California. I would love to travel, but I mainly the end goal is always to teach. I'd love to be a professor and yeah. to be able to con- conduct my own research and to publish more papers because that's what I'm passionate about and I'd love to see um if I could do that, and the challenge of academic writing to me is um, very exciting. Yes. And <laughs> so um, I think for a very long time, that's just going to be the top priority. Mm-hmm. You will become a fantastic teacher. I can already tell. You're very <laughs> no- you. yeah. You're very knowledgeable about what you're saying. You do not miss a beat, and you're like you mentioned the passion. I can feel that in your voice. Oh, thanks. So <laughs> keep up the keep up the fantastic work, and you know stay on that route definitely. Oh, thank you so much. That's mm-hmm. really sweet. Yeah. How do, how do you think doing research in general has changed you like as a person? I think psychology has changed me a lot, but I think doing research and working with um, marginalized groups of people has given me a sense of patience and empathy mm-hmm. and an ability to look at things from an objective way and to see that not everything is black and white mm-hmm. and um, that... I won't always be the best at everything. And I think having to do, um, I'm more of a go with a go with the flow, um, do work as I do it, like in short spurts, um, but randomly. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas in research, you 
have to follow a procedure. Otherwise, you it could get very unethical very quickly. Mm-hmm. So to not necessarily have to do things my way and to follow the book, follow the procedure um, was very new to me. And to start doing things that didn't come naturally, yeah. um, I think has at first, so it really bruised my ego, but um, <laughs> it um, has made me more confident in my abilities because I know as a freshman, if I was told that I would have to go into a computer program and code, yeah. I would have probably just changed my major. <laughs> but now doing something and coming to meetings um, and telling my boss I think I did all of this completely wrong. Mm-hmm. I think it gave me a sense of humility and a, a greater dedication to my work because it not getting something just made me want to get it and to look at it as a puzzle and to keep going. Yeah. It teaches you to look at failure as a positive experience. Yes. Definitely. And I know also you mentioned, you know, sticking to that procedure and everything, it really helps develop discipline as well. Yeah. Yeah. Those are two lessons that I've two of the greatest lessons I think I've learned through research as well yeah it's really cool in my opinion um just being able to do the research yeah it's it's cool it's cool to say I'm doing research (laughs) like I I do I do research but um I liked what you said about like looking at failure as a positive because it's like the whole scientific process as a whole like you your hypothesis doesn't pan out Mm -hmm. you just go back and trial and error trial and error trial and error until you get trial success yeah. Yes. You just got to keep replicating and replicating and replicating. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, I mean, you learn so much from that, that failure. Because okay. when you fail, when you go to re-replicate the experiment, you're going in knowing not what to repeat and what to try different. And, you know, you could look at that and apply that to other aspects of your life as well, whether that be, start, you know, starting a business or a new hobby, talking to people, anything, honestly. Yeah. It's like an opportunity for growth. Yes. And I think... And you do it safely, too. Yes. Because you have your mentor there to pick you up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, the, the things I've gone to her for, honestly, <laughs> it's so bad. But, like, to be able to grow in that way, I think even if I, even if I don't meet my goals as a researcher, mm-hmm. I think this has better prepared me for the workforce and a better... Um, it's given me a better attitude overall. Yeah. It helps you grow just as a person. Yeah. yeah. Definitely. Well, Alex, if you had one more thing to share with the world, what would it be? I'd say just, like, keep trying. And if you um, don't think what you want to do is realistic, just say the hell with it and go for it. Yeah. Honestly. Sky is the limit. <laughs> <laughs> and you don't know what you could do, honestly. Um Sometimes the best opportunities are disguised as impossible ideas. I like that. Alexis, it's been awesome having you on today. Thank you're, you for you're me. seriously welcome back anytime. <laughs> Julie, just shoot me a text and uh, we'll get you in here ASAP. Uh, and it will not be uh, as, as bad scheduling as I was <laughs> the last time. <laughs> you're totally fine. Okay. Thank you for having me. Anytime, of course. Again, this is your host, John, of the Research Review creating a platform to inspire. Peace out. Yeah, that was great. (laughs) That was so good.